So, it's been a while since I've taught 2 Timothy. Um, as many of you know, 2 Timothy was written from Paul to his protege. Uh, his his second hand, or his first hand man. You know, the guy he called on for all things. And this uh, young man, who was a pastor, had uh, this desire to, to fulfill the ministry that he had been called to, but he had a fear problem. He was a little bit shaky. You know, he was scared to go ahead and speak in front of people and actually command people to do specific things. Um, but here in 2 Timothy, Paul is addressing um, different things, but here in chapter 2 specifically, he's talking about discipleship and living out the life of ministry. And, you know, I, I think that this is something that uh, a lot of us in America, the American church, we miss out on. We like to hear the Word of God. We like to be guided and told these things. But very often we miss the chance to actually fulfill them, to do the work. I was listening to a, a theologian from the 18th century. Um, I, have, I use uh, audio books, and I listen to them all the time. And I was listening to one of his books just recently, and he was talking about how, how so, so often as Christians... We believe in uh, uh, uniformity in nature, but that doesn't cause us to worship. You know, we wake up every day and we see our wife or our husband, we see our kids, we see these people that we love, and it doesn't cause us to rejoice. It causes us very often to be mm, subpar in our actions. Well, you know, it's, a no it's, it's the same. It's normal. There's no change uh, the, the crazy thing is we, we wake up and we expect things to never change. But has it ever crossed your mind that things, if we were to look at how, how creation is, if it wasn't for the hand of God, everything should be ever-changing? Everything should be exploding and falling apart and not holding together. Our relationships should be together when we fall asleep and, and not together when we wake up. But because of the hand of God, we're able to trust in the uniformity of creation and specifically in our lives. Paul's calling this young man, Timothy, to a very specific ministry. And actually the Holy Spirit and God is calling Timothy to a very specific ministry. And what he's saying to him is, you have this calling on your life to show the uniformity of God's ministry to people. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You therefore, my son. And I think this is beautiful. The first thing he does in chapter 2 is, he says, my son. He uses a term of endearment. You, my child. I think of my sons, Salem, Azariah, and I, I just think about my love I have for these two young men. And I... I had a daddy day with them yesterday. We went out, had Chinese food at their favorite Chinese food restaurant, and then went to a bowling alley, and instead of bowl, we played arcade games the whole time, because that's what they wanted to do. But I just, I, I have this relationship with my sons that I have with no other person on earth. These two young men, they, they call upon me in their time of need. They, they call upon me when they want to show someone something. I am, I am the person that they look to for all, all of their needs. Paul's saying, Timothy, my son, young man who looks to me for your needs, young man I, who I have discipled, be strong. Be strong. So, in regard to what is he talking about? Be strong in what? Well, if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 12, Anytime you see therefore in a verse, you always have to turn back and see what it's there for, right? Verse 12 of, of 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until the day, until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound word, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing 
which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are these two men. The Lord grant mercy to the house of that man, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. So this this whole thing is in regard to holding fast during times of trial and tribulation. Hold fast. Because the struggle's coming. And specifically when it comes to Timothy, he's talking about times of trial and tribulation in ministry. But I think that this is something that we can look at across the board in our lives. When we go through hardship, when we go through trial, struggle, anything hard, the, the answer to us is be strong. Be strong in what? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, so often we try to rely on our own strength, on our own power, and even our own capabilities. You know, uh, I've always in my life turned to using brawn to accomplish things. I go to work, and they're like, James, we need to, you know, take out this wall, and, and we need to replace it with something new. My first instinct is to go and run and grab the wall and start just pulling apart, right? That's that's what you do. And I've spent a lot of time with a good friend of mine, most of you know him, Josh. And what I've found is the best time the best way to pull down a wall is not to just go in with a demo hammer and start breaking things down. Sometimes that's the answer, but most of the time it's not. You get too crazy with, with demolition, you could break things that shouldn't have been broken. You can go through walls that shouldn't be gone through. The best way is to pull it down in the way that it was put up. To use your brains. But see, what the Lord's saying to us is, I'm not asking you to do anything in your own power at all. You're not supposed to grow in the strength of your own power, of your own ability, of your brawn, or even your brains. It says here, grow in the strength, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are called to be strong in grace. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We know that our salvation is simply by the work of God. Accepting His, His work freely into our lives just by believing we know that we have received grace for the obedience to the faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. If we want to be obedient to the faith, which all of us should desire, it should come through grace. Trusting in the Lord to change our hearts, to grow us as we walk with Him. And we know that we need to grow in grace by walking with God daily, 2 Peter 3.18. We're called to grow in grace. So this command to Paul's son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, continues by saying, and the things that you have heard, verse 2, from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Part of this growing in in strength in the grace of Jesus Christ is discipleship. And every single one of us in this room should be in some stage of discipleship. And very often we take multiple stages of discipleship, whether we're discipling people or being discipled by people. We should be in some stage of discipleship. We see this idea given to us in Ephesians chapter 4. And remember, Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. You could turn with me. Ephesians 4.11. It says, 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And very often that's where pastors want to stop because they want to talk about the gifting of the Holy Spirit, the, the offices given. But it continues to tell us why we are given these different offices by saying, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So who is called to do the ministry? Is it the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the apostles? Is that who's called to do the ministry? Not according to Ephesians chapter 4. The people who are called to do the ministry are the saints, the church body. All of us together are called to go minister to the world and to each other, to bring people into the kingdom of God. Discipleship is what's needed. You see, pastors, pastors, teachers, apostles, elders, evangelists, their job is to disciple people, to to allow them to go out and change the world. Is that what the American church looks like today? No. What do we see with the American church? In fact, I've read several books just recently about how the American church looks like a couple of men standing on stage with cheerleaders, cheering on the pastor. That's terrible. That is terrible. What the church should look like is a bunch of people that are on the same plane, common plane, working together for the kingdom of God. All of us working together. But that comes through discipleship. Now, I've heard so many complaints within not just, not just this church, but church, the church abroad, about how I would like to go into the church, but so often I walk in and it's unfriendly. It's a place where I don't feel welcome. Oh, that's terrible. A huge portion of discipleship is being loving, being excited about people coming in, bringing people into your world, going into their world. We need to be that to this world. We need to be discipling people, bringing them in. I always talk about specific people when I teach, but I have this young man named Vince that uh, when I met him, he was a little cuckoo. and He would laugh if he heard me say that, but, but he was. He was a New Ager. He believed in New Age theology. And he believed that whatever he spoke, if he truly believed it, it would come into existence at some point, some time. And we always, I always laughed with him about it. But I started just speaking the word of God into his life. We hung out. I loved on him. I would tell him I disagree with 90% of the stuff he believed. But he gave me the time to hang out. And I'd speak the word, speak the word, speak the word. And finally the question came, why should I believe the Bible, James? Oh, let me show you why. And I went through and I got to explain to him why I believe in the Bible as the word of God. I was able to show him why the word of God is trustworthy, why it's something that, that we can all agree is more believable than any other writings, any other form of religion on earth. That young man gave his life to Christ. He's now currently living a life following after Jesus Christ. And he has allowed, not just me, but many men to disciple him. He wasn't just brought into the church and, okay, now just run free. You'll be okay. No, he, he wanted to learn more so he would go to more... Hey, you know, you're a pastor. Hey, you know, you've been a believer for a long time. Can you, do you have anything to add to my life? It's an, exciting to, it's an exciting thing to see young people get excited about learning the things of God. Not just young people, all people. So, discipleship. We see this very thing in the life of Paul the Apostle. And if you want, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. And we see it throughout the book of Acts with Paul. But I think that this is a, um, a very beautiful picture of what discipleship looks like at the end of his ministry to these people. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. 
It says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I come to Asia, that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, the first thing I want you guys to realize is I've spoken truth to you. I've given you all that you need for godliness. What's come out of my mouth has been nothing but God godliness. Verse 22, and I see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He says, the next thing I'm showing you right now currently is there are times of struggle ahead in my life. And this is what I have to tell you. I'm going forward with the trials. I'm going to be the same man during those trials that I was when I was with you here. Verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I, test, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he says, look, I've shown you with my life. I've preached the word with my mouth. I've guided you, and now you guys go and do the same thing. You guys go out and you be that example and that word of truth to this world, to the flock that the Holy Spirit has put under you. Do you understand that everyone in this room has a flock? That's pretty intense to think about. Now, obviously, here Paul's talking to a bunch of pastors, so that's specific, but everyone in this room has a flock. You have an area of influence that you reach that, that probably most of us do not. You have a group of people that look to you that probably don't look to the rest of us. It's funny, my wife Christian, most of you know her. A lot of you have known her her whole life. Um, when we were in California, I was... A youth pastor. She was a new mother. She had these two new babies. Now we have four, but she had these two new babies, and she told me, "Honey, I feel like I don't have a ministry anymore. I feel like I don't have a spot in ministry anymore." And I said, "Well, what are you talking about? You're a worship leader." Yeah, but I don't get to talk to the girls like I used to. I said, "Hon, you you have babies." <laughs> that you're ministering to every day, these young people that are going to look to you and be guided by you. It's one of the most important ministries there is. Those young people. And that ministry to those young people influences all of the young women with babies, children around. Your ministry touches people you don't even know it touches. Very often the people that we're ministering to aren't the ones that we're looking at. They're the ones standing there looking in as we look at others. It's, in, it's insane. So, so check this out. We all have a flock that we're called to. Paul's saying, I have not shunned to, to declare to you the whole counsel of God, so take heed to yourselves. Verse 29 of Acts chapter 20 says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and I give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one else's silver or gold or apparel. My actions have showed no greed. Not only am I speaking these things with my mouth, I'm showing them with my life. I've coveted no one's things. Verse 34, yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul saying, not only am I saying it with my mouth, my actions are showing it with my life. You know, when I was a kid, I had a bunch of friends who went to church. And I, I was not one of the church kids. I was a kid that didn't have to go to church. I didn't, my parents weren't Christians. My dad is now. But all my friends that were hanging out with me, which was not a good idea for them, They'd always tell me, hey, I, you know, I can't stand going to church. Why? Because I go with my parents and they're hypocrites. They act this way at home and they go to church and they act like they're holy. Well, that's how we all are. I, I had nothing to say. The truth is now, now that I know, yes, we all have hypo hypocritical portions of our lives. But this is the, the truth of the matter. Our lives need to show what we proclaim with our mouths. You want to be a positive influence on people's lives? Your life has to represent the words that come out of your mouth. You, you want your children to walk after the things that you believe are true? Jesus Christ, you want your children to follow after Jesus? Your life has to represent that. Now that doesn't mean that when we make mistakes, the Lord can't grab a hold of our kids and bring them in. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that our, our, our children's faith and those, the faith of those around us is completely reliant upon us. Thank God it's not. But I'm going to tell you, if you want to be that example, if you want to be that, that useful worker, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, your life needs to represent what comes out of your mouth. And it's funny, when we believe things are true, we show action. We show action. This last uh, weekend, on Friday, I had issues. Oh, no, it was Tuesday. I had issues uh, with the heat and my work. And I messed with it, and it got all funky, and I had to, like, stay there pretty much all night long, okay, to get it to work right. Well, that night, a young girl that works there called me and said, Hey, I smell smoke. I smell, I smell fire. And I was in my pajamas, I was in shorts, my skibbies, and a little t-shirt, and I jumped in my shoes, and I was out the door in my car making phone calls. I was scared. I thought there was a fire in the building that I oversee. And I thought I caused it. Because I believed that there was a fire. There wasn't, by the way. Because I believed that there was a fire in the building, there was an action that I took. And I was driving probably too, way faster than I should, and I was taking actions that I, I really thought, hey, I need to get there, and I need to get there now. It turned out to be wood smoke because, you know, it's getting cold and everyone's stoking up the fire. And the windows were open downstairs, so they smelled wood smoke from the neighbors around. But the, the truth of the matter is if we believe something, it'll take action. Now here's the, the convicting portion of this. What do your actions say you believe? What do your actions say you believe? I know that when I examine my actions, sometimes I go, wow, I believe some pretty crazy things. Because <laughs> our actions are the proof of what we believe. Paul says, hey, I've shown you with my words. I've shown you with my actions. It says here, verse 36 of Acts chapter 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, leading them back to the Lord, not to himself. Then they all wept freely, fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him, sorrowing most of all 
for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. True discipleship is going to create unity. It's going to create a, uh, a, a fellowship, an unbreakable bond. These elders in the church of Ephesus, they're, they're in love with Paul because Paul has been a father in the faith to them. That very relationship I was speaking about with my sons and I. Do we have that relationship with someone? Maybe we're not at the point in our lives where we could be a father in the faith, but do we have a father in the faith? Do we have someone we could go to and say, hey, I'm struggling. I need help with this. How did you get through this? Do we have someone to talk to when things get tough? We need that. On the other hand, for us who have been walking with the Lord for a while, do we have people that come to us do we have people that, that come to us and say, hey, help, I need help. You've been doing this longer than I have. Can you tell me what to do in this situation? We need both of those things, Paul's and Timothy's in our lives. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure hardship. So, because you have been committed and you've decided to, to lead people, to guide people, to disciple people, then you now must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. When the hard times come, now you have to endure. Now you have to practice what you preach. You need to show the very thing that you've been saying, true. Verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. It's funny, as a Roman soldier, you had very specific things that you were allowed and not allowed to do. But one of the major things they didn't want their soldiers doing was buying and trading. They didn't want them opening their own business. They didn't want them to, actually, they didn't want them to get married until they're outside of service. Why? Because Roman soldiers had a specific task. And, and what's crazy, you know, we look, at, we look at soldiers today, if you were to say, oh, you can't get married, you can't trade, you can't sell, you can't do any of that, for four years of enlistment, like we do in America, you might say, well, that's hard, that's pretty intense. Roman soldiers were asked to do this for 25 years. When you joined the, the Roman military, it was a 25-year service, whether you were a Roman citizen or not a citizen. and That divides differently. Pay was different. Position was different. But you were asked not to be involved in anything. Receive all of your sustenance from one source, Rome. Be given everything you need by one, one supply, Rome. And then when you retire... You're given land. You're given all the ways for you to succeed in life outside of the military. But I want your mind to not be on anything but that. Now, obviously, the Lord's not calling us not to marry. That's doctrines of demons, according to the book of Jude. Obviously, the Lord's not saying, hey, don't go buy, sell, and trade. That's not what he's saying. Don't get involved in business. But what he is saying here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is, if you're going to be that soldier for Christ, that enduring soldier for Christ, you must, be, you must not be entangled in the affairs of this life. The affairs of this life cannot be the thing that your mind is constantly set on. That's difficult. That's very difficult. Because it's so easy to get caught, caught up in Fox News. It's so easy to get caught up with what Hillary Clinton is saying next. You know, all these different things. Or what does my bank account look like? It's easy to get caught up in these things. The affairs of this life. But i got to tell you, if you want to know how to endure as a Christian, how to, how to come out on the other end 
standing before Jesus Christ with him saying, well done, good and faithful uh, servant, enter into your rest. How do we endure in Christianity? It's by not being entangled in the things of this life. You want to know how to struggle in your Christianity? You want to know how to struggle through this life as a Christian? Love the things of this world. That's how. Entangle yourself. Become split-minded. That's how you do it. Worry about the things of this life. If you don't want to have all of those problems, if you want to endure, if you want to make it out, not scathed on the other side, receive all your sustenance from one source. Receive all your direction from one source. That's Jesus Christ and him alone. Verse 5. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So, you want to be strong in the Lord? Be like a person in athletics. Not just a person, but a winner. How do you do that? By competing in regard to the rules. I played 14 years of football, and I could just, it, this actually brought a picture in my mind of what this looks like. I could just imagine, you know, uh, an offense coming to the line, and before the, the ball is, uh, is, you know, I, I can't even think of the word. I, uh, <laughs> before, what? Snapped. There you go. Before the ball is snapped, the defense just jumps and hits the quarterback, smashes him. And that happens over and over and over and over and over. Would it be much of a game? Would it be football? It wouldn't be. If you want to be a winner in football, you have to follow the rules of, of football, unless you're Bill Belichick. Um, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. So you must compete according to the rules. And we're going to jump into these because he's going to explain these things as we read. It says, continues, uh, verse 6, that hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So this is reminding them here, and remember back in 2 it says, commit, um, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what you need to be committing to these men. That Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Verse 9, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not changed, chained. Verse 10, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he says, remember, he says, endure as a good soldier of Christ. Paul says, look at my life as I endure as a good soldier of Christ. Endure. We're called to this endurance. Why? For the sake of the elect. We're called to endure so that we can minister to the people who are called to God's kingdom. Well, who are the people? I don't know. The people are those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I have no idea which one of each person is. I have no idea. So who am I supposed to do it for? Everyone. I'm supposed to literally live a life that ministers to every single person for the sake of the elect. I'm called to be a slave to all people for the sake of the elect. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? It sounds like what Paul's ministry was. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that I also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. And now we get into the rules that was that he spoke about in regard to the sports, right? To the, the athletics. It says, for if we died with him, middle of verse 11, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny or uh, if, if we deny him, 
he will also deny us. Here's the rules. You want to live with Christ? You got to die. If you want to endure, if you endure, you also reign. If you deny him, he will deny you. Verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Here are the rules of engagement. That 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 uh, jumping the line before the snap of the ball. Verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Well, this is a a pretty intense charge here. Because when I look at apologetics of our days, the defending of the faith, what I see is striving over words, especially within the faith. I see Baptist pastors with non-Baptist pastors, and I see uh, uh, um, Pentecostal pastors with non-Pentecostal, and they're always arguing over little things that don't matter, petty things, showing division in the church creating complete division from the world outside. Tell them not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of their hearers. We need to be enduring hardship for the sake of the elect. That's this whole pur- the whole purpose of this. Hardship, having conversation with one another. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, 3. It says, Philippians 2.3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Bear with one another, not striving about words to no profit. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You remember back when he said um, in verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. He continues that thought in verse 15 by saying, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, how do we rightly divide the word of truth? By being like the good farmer and partaking of it ourselves first. We have to partake of the word of God. Question, is the word of God impacting your life? Is it causing change? You want to be a disciple maker? You want to be a worker for the kingdom of God? You first have to be discipled by the word of God. You have to partake of it. And, how, and, and here, where, where is the, uh, the, the ominous put? Whose responsibility is this? Is it the guy who, who looks after you? Is it the pastor who's, who's you know, at your church? Whose responsibility is it? It says here, be diligent to present yourself. I've, I've had conversations. You know, it's funny having uh, uh, Will as my father-in-law. I've heard a lot of people talk about, um, oh, well, I, you know, I don't get enough time with Will. Or I don't get enough time with so-and-so. Been in ministry for a long time. It's always, I, I don't get enough time with this pastor. i got to tell you, this is a really funny thing. If you want time with your pastor... Or if you want time with anyone in the in the ministry, you know what you got to do? Go ask for time. Call them. You know, it, I'm going to say this out loud, and Will's probably going to hit me later, but Will has a rule in his house that the door's always open, that that anyone that wants to come over can walk right in. I mean, that's that's Will's life. That's Will's rule. Come on over. Hang out. You want to be part of the family? Come be part of the family. If you don't, then you don't. Understandably. Here, 
the ominous is put on us. The ominous is put on all of us. You want to know uh, uh, more? You want to get closer to the body of Christ? Come, be part, be part here. You want to be a worker of God? Come and be a worker. It's on all of us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. The, the word there for idle babblings is empty chatter. And when it says to shun, I know that's a weird word, but it really it literally means to keep away. To keep yourself away from profane and, and empty chatter. Why? Because that will increase to more ungodliness. And I think that we can take that rule and apply it to anything. Idle. Don't allow yourself to become idle. Why? Because it's going to result in ungodliness. We need to live lives that are aimed towards Christ Jesus. Verse 17, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. And if you remember, Hymenius was one of the men in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, that he handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, literally kicking him out of the church, wanting him to return with his flesh destroyed. It says here that, that this ungodliness, if we allow it, will spread like cancer. I had a good friend, Lawrence. He, um, he had cancer. He had you know, a couple spots within his body. And very quickly it entered his bloodstream. Well, I knew the guy for about two years. And the whole time he had cancer. And at this random point, it got into his bloodstream. After it entered his bloodstream, he was gone in like a week and a half. Two years of not dying. Well, he was dying slowly. But as soon as it hit the bloodstream, gone. You see, I think that sin has a similar progression. It starts out with idleness. Maybe idle chatter. Maybe idleness on, on the computer, looking at things you probably shouldn't, but it's not so bad. Maybe a relationship with someone that's not your spouse. Idle and it slowly progresses. But it's not so bad. And actually, if anyone was looking into your life, they would say, oh, there's nothing really wrong there. And then at some point, it hits the bloodstream. And the quick progression is death. I think that's how, uh, I think that's how very often sin works in the life of a believer. If we allow that idleness to be part of our life, eventually... It'll lead to death. Here, specifically, he's talking about idle chattering. Compromising in the way that we communicate. Verse 18. These men who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So, a couple things in regard to this, and I think that he's just addressing a very specific situation we need to be very careful with what we say in regard to the things of God. I think we need to be studied. We need to be those who are showing ourselves approved by rightly dividing the Word of God because we can cause people to stumble. These men here were saying that the, the resurrection had already happened. It's already passed. There are people today that teach this very thing, that we're currently living in the, uh, the apostate church, or so to say. There are people saying that, that uh, the seven years of tribulation have already started. It's false. It's flat false. You'll know. You'll know. Well, hopefully you all know and we won't be here. Because according to Scripture, we're all going to be caught up. And then the man of sin will be revealed. We won't be here. But here... He says that these men have overthrown the faith of some by their very words. 
Verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So the seal is, God's not confused about who is a follower of Christ and who's not. We may be confused about who's a follower of Christ and who's not, but God's not. Secondly, it says, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The word iniquity means wrongfulness of character. If you name the name of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, let your life show it. Let your character show it. Let you live a way that shows Jesus. Verse 20, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now I've heard this used in the church, and I think that this is something we need to be very careful about, that God made some for honor and some for, for dishonor, right? And that, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're going through struggles in the church because you're probably just a vessel for dishonor. That's not at all what Scripture says. Scripture here, what it says is, is that there are some for dishonor and there are some for honor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor. What makes you a vessel of honor? A lifestyle that follows Jesus Christ. Following Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is no vessels of dishonor in the church of God. We are all made new. We're all created new. In the, when, when Jesus, or when God looks down upon us, he no longer sees us in our sinful state. He now sees his son, Jesus Christ. We are vessels of honor. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, past tense, already sanctified, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now my question is, this is very practical, is this what our lives represent? With the church, do we look like this? Do we look like those who are pursuing righteousness? Right standing with God? Doing what the Lord has, has asked us to do? Faith. Are we living lives of faith? Or are we just living lives that are, that are driven by whatever thing is put in front of us that day? Are we living lives truly in the faith of God? Love, agape, unquenchable, undeserved love. Peace with those who call on the Lord. Do we live a life that is peaceful with one another? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall become, be called the sons of God. Do we live a life that is peaceful? Do we purposefully make peace with people? I think that's a good question for the church. Because very often what I see in the church is not us making peace, but instead creating division. Within the church and outside of the church. We're not trying to draw people together. We're trying to separate. Well, what, what, what distinction is there between you and I? Let's talk about that. Whoa, does it matter? I mean, when it matters, it matters. Don't get me wrong. You hang out with certain people that are part of different groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Yeah, I'm going to say, hey, there's, there's some big separation here. <laughs> me and you don't agree on it. We're not going to be able to come together. But as believers, as followers of Christ, am I really going to spend a whole bunch of time saying, well, yeah, and, in your church, you guys all stand up, put your hands up, and worship. And at our church, we, you know, if we stand up, we, we put one hand up. Are we really going to talk about these things that don't matter? I, uh, I used to work as a, a 
on-site project manager for Southern California Edison. And I showed up on a project, and there was this guy. I've told this story a couple times, so bear with me. But there's this guy, and there was just something way different about him. I, I could tell this guy's a believer. I don't know. His, his speech was soft. He was very loving and caring and everything that he did. It was just very apparent. And the Holy Spirit just told me, no, that, that's your brother. So after meeting with everyone and, and doing the things that I had to do, I finally walked up to him and I said, hey, uh, believer? And he said, I am a believer. And he said, are you Calvinist? And then I went, Lord, I thought you said he was a believer. No, I'm just kidding. He, he, <laughs> I said to him, I'm not a Calvinist. He said, so you're an Armenianist. And I said, I'm not an Armenianist. He said, well, what are you? I said, I'm a Biblicist. And he said, that's not fair. You can't say that. So, so we go on and we have this, this kind of banter for a while. We have a really cool conversation. In the end, we, we find out the differences in our beliefs. But we're, we have the same God. We believe in the same word. And me and him become very close. We do Bible studies every day. I mean, I was on the project for three months. We, we hung out. We talked about Jesus every day. It was so awesome. It was exciting. And we had obvious differences in our beliefs. But nothing that caused division or separation. In fact, I think it was a, a perfect, and I was, thank God that it went that way, because it's a perfect example to those outside. People knew we had differences in our beliefs in Christ. Not in Christ, but in certain biblical areas. People knew that because they heard us talk about it. They also knew that we had unity in all other things. That our unity in Christ was like a brotherhood. That literally from the point we realized each other were Christians, psh, we're instant friends. Does that define your life? Does that show what you believe? I mean, is your life showing that, hey, I have peace with the body of Christ? And I think that, that in Philippians where we just were not too long ago, it shows what we're supposed to be doing. Philippians chapter 2, we're supposed to be seceding to others. Giving others the, 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 uh, the strong hand, so to say, to allow them to speak, to allow them to, to uh, you know, express themselves, to show them love, to look out for them instead of yourself. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So let me ask you, are we supposed to pursue ignorant, pursue ignorant and foolish disputes? No. It says here to avoid them. Literally, you come to the point in a conversation, you realize that there's about to be something that causes division, and instead of pursuing it, let's get to the bottom of this thing and fix it, Scripture says, avoid it. Why? Because it creates strife. It generates strife. In verse 24 says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. This is not, this isn't like a hey, you probably shouldn't do that, guys. This is a command. A servant of God must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Holy moly, that's difficult. Let's just be real. There are times when I hear people say things and I just want to dive right in. No, what are you saying? Are you crazy? You don't believe that. I want to jump on it. Let's fix this thing. What are you saying? There's no way you believe that. Here it says, hey, don't quarrel. Continues by saying, able to teach and patient. So on top of not quarreling, not not causing dissension, not creating strife, we're called to teach and be patient with people. Verse 25, how do you do this? In humility. 
in humility. And then it says, correcting those who are in opposition. Speaking of non-believers. Speaking of those who are in opposition to Christ. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. So when we're having these conversations, everything we do should be with the purpose of driving people to Christ. Believers and non-believers alike. You're a believer? Let's not, let's not create strife. Let's not generate strife. You're a believer? Awesome. Let's talk about the things of Christ. Let's build each other up. Let's grow together. As we come to the things in Scripture that, that me and you have disputes about, let Scripture reason it out. Not me and you. Let Scripture reason it out. When we come to non-believers, don't generate strife. Don't cause dissension. Don't create a distance between them. Why? Because we want to drive them to Christ. You see, it's funny, being here on earth, our whole purpose as Christians is to lead people to Christ so that they could go to heaven with us. That's our whole purpose here. Otherwise, just take us. Like, we're, we're ready to go. Heaven's way better than here. Our whole purpose here is to say, hey, I, you know, it's, as Chuck Smith used to say, it's one beggar saying to another beggar, the food's over there. Do we live life in a way where we're driving people to Christ? Where we're pointing people to Jesus? Or are we causing dissension? Are we causing strife? Division? It says in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Now understand this. This isn't saying we just have to be gentle in our thoughts. That's a pretty harsh statement. That these people might come to their senses because they're crazy. How often do we get into conversations with, with believers and non-believers alike and go, yeah, I think this person's a little nuts. I, I, I think they're a little crazy. I don't think they know what they're talking about. But our first reaction to that should not be, well, let me fix that. Our first reaction should be, how do I lead this person to Jesus? Does this situation need me to be gentle and loving and kind? Does this situation need me to say, no, I think you're confused about this thing? How are we going about our dealings with people? Discipleship. It says here, that they may come to their senses, verse 26, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So it's a hard thing, knowing that someone is doing the will of Satan, yet still being gentle and loving and caring with them and wanting them to give that up and follow Christ. We're called to that. Understand that if anyone's not doing the will of Jesus, there's only one other will. There's only one other person's will to do, and that's the, the deceiver, the dissenter, Satan himself. Adam and Eve had a choice. You could do the will of God, eat of the, not eat of the fruit, eat the fruit of every other tree in the garden, eat of the fruit of the tree of life. I mean, live in harmony, great, great life. Or you could do the other will. Do what God said not to do. We've been dealing with the same thing our entire lives. Every person in here. The difference? Jesus has come 2,000 years ago. He's put to death that, that shameful thing, which is separation from God. And we now have forgiveness of our sins. Repentance. And we get to follow after Christ Jesus because of the cross of Jesus. We have life given to us. And if you're a believer, if you're not a believer here today, I beg you, give your life to Christ. I'm not going to do altar calls, but I beg you to give your life to Christ. If you want to have a conversation as to why you should believe, please come talk to me. There's plenty of people you could come in here to talk to as well. But I can tell you, as a believer, we all have the Holy Spirit. We've been given the teacher, the promised teacher by Jesus Christ, who will lead and guide us 
and direct us by His will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your love. We thank You for Your sacrifice. We thank You for Your kingdom. We thank You for Your word, Father. We ask that You do continue to guide us, Father. And if there is anyone in this room that does not know You, Father, I ask that You put a burning in their heart. Give them a desire to know You, to experience Your love, to experience Your guidance, Father. And for all of us, who are your children, I ask that you continue to, to urge that fire. Father, to give us a desire to follow you in a way that we've never followed you before. We ask that you use our lives in a mighty way. Use us as disciplers, Father. Also, put men and women in our lives to disciple us, to guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. We love you. We praise you, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.